Hi everyone, Mike Del Rose Jr. here. Welcome to Real Estate is Ridiculous. This is season one, episode one, with our guest Brian Keefe from Homebridge Financial. I'm joined by my host Bobby McShane and sous chef Mike Simone. Uh, so welcome to our first official episode. You know, we ran the pilot about two weeks ago and thought, hey, we can do this, and no one told us not to enough times. So here we are with our first real episode. Uh, we're going to talk about general real estate craziness from the perspective of local professionals in greater Boston here. Um, so with that, I'd love to introduce my friend and colleague, Brian Keefe of Homebridge Financial. Glad to be with you today and uh, look forward to being on the uh, initial podcast. Appreciate it. Happy to have you. Why don't you give ourselves a brief introduction? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, I am a Belmont guy. I grew up in Belmont, uh, uh, went off to college up in Vermont, and then uh, kind of returned to this area. I started uh, originating loans. I was actually working at an electrical distributor back, uh, way back when. And then uh, wasn't, wasn't really, uh, didn't enjoy the product line and all the rest. And my brother-in-law was working at a bank in uh, Waltham, Massachusetts as a mortgage originator. So I jumped over and uh, immediately I knew I did the right thing. And that was back uh, actually 30, 30 years ago this year, 1992. So I've been writing wow. for 30 years now. And uh, so pretty much seen it all and been through a lot of different cycles. And, and uh, still 30 years later, I love the industry. I just find it surprising that someone would move to the beautiful state of Vermont and then actually want to move back to Massachusetts. Um, Let me tell you something. Vermont <laughs> is very cold in the morning. I went to a military school up there, so I was out drilling at 530 in the morning. And you, you know it's cold when your nostril hairs freeze day in and day out in the morning. Oh, so that, that, it was brutal. But uh, I do love it. I go back and visit often, but uh, I'm not ready to live there. A little bit too slow paced for myself. Fair enough. So. Brian, I want to have a little bit of discussion about the mortgage industry, uh, where you have a boatload of experience. And obviously, you're no, you understand there's a lot of craziness in the marketplace right now. Uh, houses selling hundreds of thousands over the asking price in some cases. First-time home buyers not really knowing what to do. You know, so I want to hear your thoughts on a couple of these points. So other than direct offer competition and actually putting a house under agreement, what is a home buyer's biggest challenge when it comes to financing? I think the fine in this environment, it's always how attractive is your offer? You know, and when I say that is what are your conditions? Are you getting 95% financing or did you waive your financing uh, condition? Buyers have to know what they, what it means when they do that. I think put yourself in the best position. People say, oh, get pre-approved. You know, what, what a pre-approval really means. This is how a buyer would put themselves in the best position. It's about educating yourself as well. What are my monthly payments? What's it going to look like when it's done? Because oftentimes people get all caught up in the excitement of the buy. Then all of a sudden it's under agreement. And all of a sudden they realize, oh my God, this, this bill is going to come every 30 days. And you got to make sure that uh, you get your head around those numbers before you go put pen to paper. So you really need 20% down to buy a home, right? No, that is not true. Not a true at all. Mortgage insurance allows you to put down as little as 3%. In some cases, you know, if, if the buyer qualifies for certain programs, I, you know, we can do 100%. I'm doing 100% financing on a condominium right now out in Holyoke. That's crazy. You know, yeah, you know, it's a mass housing loan where they give the second mortgage. And they don't uh, require any payments on it until you sell the property. Then they just get their money back. That's it. 
So there's a lot of opportunity out there. Putting 20% down. It used to be in the 70s, you had to put 20% down. Otherwise, you couldn't buy a property. Well, mortgage insurance became an industry where they'll insure the top part of the loan. But in some arenas, you, you know, when I say some arenas, I mean loan size, jumbo loans, your best options are going to be with 20% down. The jumbo arena are, are loans that are not bought by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac or FHA due to the loan size. And uh, that's a whole, you know, it's not a standardized market. So that's where 20% down is. I'm not going to say mandatory, but that's where your best deals are. Yeah, I, I think that's the craziest thing to hear as a home buyer. Obviously, I know you can make you know offers with a down payment of less than 20%. We do it all the time. But I think a lot of people, even after maybe 20, almost 20 years now since the crash, are still under the impression that you need 20% down to buy a house. And that's just not the case. However, does that impede in the ability of a buyer to put a house under agreement? Bobby, do you have any thoughts on that? Would that impede if a buyer puts less of a down payment to get their offer accepted in the eyes of the seller? And it may, yes. Um, that's not always the case. There's a lot of factors, I think, and I'll let Brian touch upon it from the financial side, but having that up-to-date, valid pre-approval that's been you know, submitted to underwriting, I think, uh, carries a lot of weight in regards to the, the buyer's you know, financial readiness, so to speak, as opposed to what the down payment is. But Brian, I'll let you touch upon that as well from your side yeah, of things. Bobby, I'm going to stop you right there because you said something that's extremely valuable to a home buyer trying to purchase their first house, and that's sending a client to underwriting prior to making the offer. Brian, I'd love you to talk about that in detail because I think that's a uh, one of the tools in our, our toolboxes and negotiation tactics that we use as real estate professionals to help our buyers get their offer accepted. So please take it away from there. Yeah, there's two separate, uh, I just want to go back to the original question and then move into that one about whether or not it impacts you if you don't put down 20%. I think that almost all the listings have certain buying pools. I think, Mike, if we're, if we're talking, you know, you're up in the million dollar range, you, you know, you're absolutely right. You need 20% down to be competitive, most likely. But, you know, if you're looking at a condo that's $300,000 and the buying pools are mostly FHA buyers or uh, people like I do a lot out in Holyoke and, and almost everyone is a conventional buyer or an FHA buyer that I'm dealing with. And none of them have 20%, you know? So it, it, I think a lot of it depends on the market that you're in and the property that you're trying to sell. I think getting, <clears throat> moving on to the next part of the question, which is the critical, very critical is the pre-approval. There are pre-approvals that are solid as a rock. And then there are pre-approvals that are as good as the piece of paper they're written on. The question that you as a listing agent, I believe, first of all, when you would do a pre-approval letter, what happens is the lender will pull their credit. What we're looking for is any red flags that are going to be a problem. So what we all do is we pull credit first and foremost. If someone doesn't let me pull their credit, then they're not really serious about getting pre-approved because that's going to tell us a lot. It's a third of the equation. We can see what the monthly debt loads are. We can see if there's any liens on them, any judgments, any bankruptcies immediately. Second thing, then they're going to need to provide documentation. You know, they need to upload and they have to. If they don't do it, then they're not really pre-approved. They need to upload the supporting documentation that we require. It's going to be pay stubs, W-2s, most likely, and bank statements. At that point in time, when they upload it, we run it through an automated underwriting underwriting engine by Feeney or Freddie. And we have our underwriters review the income and the liabilities so that what we're using is signed off on so that when they do put that property under agreement, we're not fighting that fight at that moment. That's a 
true pre-approval. If the buyer never provided any documentation, that's just a pre-qualification. They might have pulled credit and that was it. You know, that's not really worth anything. They didn't really look for any potential problems. And I think that, uh, you know, typically when we make an offer, we'll, we'll follow it up. If, if the agent requests us, we'll follow it up with a phone call to the listing agent, introducing ourselves and speaking of the merits of the buyer, the strength of the buyer to help try to push that, that deal along. You just mentioned the difference between a pre-qualification and pre-approval. I think a lot of home buyers don't understand that there's kind of two phases to that. Uh, the first where you're entering just basic information, the second where you are getting that credit pulled. Isn't there a step further where that client actually goes through the underwriting process prior to yeah. purchasing? When they provide the documentation, okay, and then it gets reviewed by underwriting to verify the income. Okay. So, and, and then that it's after that step and we verify the assets. You know, we're looking for the down payment money too. You know, we're going to look backwards and we're going to say, okay, was there any large deposits? We go through the full pre-approval process, okay? And then that, what that means is that it should theoretically just come down to the appraised value of the property. I, I think you see where this conversation is headed because I'm talking about structuring an offer with, you know, limiting contingencies to make it more attractive to a listing agent and a seller. I see uh, I've had clients waive their financing contingency after you know a long talk about risk and discussions with their lender, of course, uh, but I see those buyers sometimes waiving that financing contingency, basically putting their five percent deposit at risk and guaranteeing that loan. Um, and is that something that that you recommend to certain clients who have the ability to do so, or is that something you'd rather not see in an offer? Well, I mean, that puts all the pressure on the lender, you know, to perform because it's the person's money's at risk. So, in a situation like that. They need to be fully pre-approved. We need to look at, make sure that there's no issues. If it's a condominium, what if there's an issue with the condo complex? Nothing to do with the buyer, but the complex, and then they can't perform. So you got to make sure that you're covered or you have the cash to pay it. Unfortunately, at least in the environment we were just in, and maybe maybe it's diminishing now, I don't know. You kind of had to take some risk to be able to get a property under agreement. Brian, I just wanted to, as you just kind of alluded to with the, when you're lending on uh condominium, you have to have the condominium approved, you know, in addition to the buyer. Uh, to my knowledge, and I'm curious myself as to some of the things I, I've heard since the tragedy that happened last year down in Florida, that there's new guidelines based on lenders lending on condominiums and certain questions that need to be asked and verified prior to. Do you have any updated knowledge on this? Because i um, still learning about it myself. Well, <laughs> Not necessarily additional, but actually enforcing guidelines, except for down in Florida, where they do have separate guidelines, not separate guidelines, but lower loan to value requirements. You need to put down typically another 5% in Florida because of stuff like that. But as far as if you're talking about the structure of the building, you know, uh, not, ne not necessarily. You know, we, we look at the meetings of the, of the condo associations, if it comes in, if is there a red flag there, then yeah, we, we, we might look at that. But part of our appraisal process has nothing to do with the structure of the buildings. That's a home inspection issue or whatnot. We're looking for market value. Brian, have you had any trouble with appraisals or houses appraising out uh, in this in this market specifically where you're seeing yes. these properties? You want to yeah. tell a little bit about what's going on from that perspective? So that, you know, it's another thing that you need to, to be in good communication with your realtor 
and go through the what ifs prior to the offer. You know, if you're putting in an offer, it's on for, you know, 600,000 and you're offering six to 80. You know, what happens if the appraisal comes in at 600? You know, you're going you're gonna to have to be able to deal with that $80,000 differential or the seller's going to ask you to deal with it before they sign the PNS. I mean, this is stuff all the time. Now, as long as we can get some comps, because when it moves fast, like it did upward this past year, what was it, 18% appreciation, it's a very moving fast market. Sometimes, you know, stuff under agreement doesn't count towards a comp. It's a compensating factor. It has to be recorded at the registry as a closed loan for us to be able to use it as a comp. So sometimes it's difficult in a raising value environment quickly for the values to catch up. I would say, do you have numbers off the top of your head as in 20% of my offers, uh, contracts are not appraising at this time or anything like that you can share? Yeah, I, I don't have a number off the top of my head. I mean, if you're asking me for a guesstimate, I don't think it would be that high. Typically, the listing agents, if they're pushing the envelope, they typically meet the appraiser at the property and they're going to you know, hand off what they believe are high comps just to try to control the mindset of the appraiser and uh, make sure that they, they, they can support those values. I mean, does it happen? Yes. I mean, is it 20%? Eh, I don't know if it's 20%. That's a little bit high, I think. Ryan, when, um, when things do come in um, below value, appraised value, uh, what's kind of the process if uh, someone wanted to contest that appraisal? Well, uh, technically and lately, what we would do is we have to find fault with the appraisal. We can't just say we don't like it. We would have to find, so at least at my organization, the process is, I would have to find comps, which I would get from the listing agent or the selling agent that weren't used, that they thought should be used. I go through my own internal appraisal department who communicates with the AMCs, the appraisal management companies. I cannot deal directly with them. So I have had times when the appraiser will come back and just say, I stand by my value and I'm not going to reappraise it you know, or I'm not going to look at your comps. That's happened to me more than once. And I, I'm confident it's happened to most loan officers. And at that point, that's the value. The Frank Dodd Act has put in a line between the appraisal companies and the lender. You got to be very careful about trying to apply pressure to an appraiser these days. So there's no nuclear option you're saying, like trial by combat or something of the like? I can get it internally. The only other thing you could do is internally, if you just want to throw out the appraisal and order a new one, they have, you know, my internal guy is going to have to say, yeah, I agree, this appraisal is no good. And the appraiser is not willing to re relook at it. If my internal guy says the appraisal is not bad, it is what it is. It is what it is. The next question for you, Brian, and thank you for going into detail on that, is if a home buyer wanted to start their search today, how much money do you recommend? I know it's going to vary, but how much money do you recommend a buyer having in their pocket to start their home search to be able to make offers with confidence? What are some of the numbers we're looking at in that regard? I think I think the price is is all is drives this answer, Michael. Because you know, if you're looking in the three hundred thousand dollar range, you, know, you got three percent saved. We can make that work, okay? We can do a home, a home ready, a mass housing. We can get a seller credit for closing costs. You can make it work, but you need to have that three percent minimum, okay? You really want more than that. But if we're talking up in the eight nine hundred thousand dollar range, you know, you're not ready at three percent. You're you're not even in the ballgame. You need to have some more money down. So I think the price point matters a lot. 
but I think that if we're talking you know, and, and lower, what is lower end? Lower end is different to different people. But if you're in the conforming world, which is a loan under 647,000 these days, if you have 3% down and good credit, you're a candidate to be a homeowner. That's what Obviously, I'm getting at. The bar of 20%, people don't, you know, the reason the whole mortgage insurance is in there, people, you can't save 20% at coming out of school these days. It's hard, it's hard. Right. You leverage, you, you know, you do get $10,000 saved. You buy a place, all of a sudden you sell it, you made, you know, you make X amount on it. And then all of a sudden you got 40,000. Well, you know, to play with. No, I think that's very important. Again, I, you know, we started off the conversation with, you know, down payment amounts and, you know, less than 20%. We're kind of finishing up in that regard because I think a lot of people realize that, yes, it's hard to, to come up with that down payment initially. Um, but if you're, if you have the capacity to save any sort of money, you know, you're not as out of reach as you think for, at least from the financial side, uh, the competition is another story. Of course, uh, I haven't seen a market like this ever. Uh, and I started right. at at the crash in 2009 uh, when I graduated college. So uh, we've never this is mostly unprecedented. I know, Brian, you've told me, you know, years ago that, you know, we're due for a correction and that never came. Uh, do you have any no. insight? Do you have any insight from I'm not asking you to predict the market because you'd be a rich man if you could. But is, is there any indication that things are going to go south anytime soon? I think the demand for housing is so strong across the country that no, I don't think. I mean, is it eighteen percent last year appreciation is unsustainable? You know, is there a fat in that? Probably, but I don't think that. I think the demand is still there. Rates are still down. You know, rates are going up. You know, you got to realize anything below six percent is a great rate. You know, it's just that we've been spoiled since two thousand and seven with rates being so low. The affordability index is high. Um, now, I think the demand is going to be there. Do I think it's going to be like it was as rates go up? No, but I still think it's going to be demand around here. If you live near a major metropolitan city, you know, you look at our area, Watertown, look at Watertown. They are so set up. What a great community to live in now. Huh? Tax burden is low because of commercial influence. Uh, you're six miles outside of the city of Boston. Uh, you know, I do not see if it's a nice property in a nice area any demand falling shortly in the near term. Well, that's great for sellers and terrible for me because I want to buy well. a house someday. <laughs> <laughs> to take Brian's point one step further too, supply and demand, the, the lack of land around here and the, the low inventory, uh, it doesn't appear that that's going to be changing anytime soon. So just from the demand, supply and demand standpoint, uh, I agree with you, Brian. I, I'd be surprised to see things change drastically anytime soon. Well, thank you both for ruining my day. Hey, listen, I, th I think you might have a couple of properties to sell too. So don't forget that side of the equation. My yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Brian, we're going to end with one topic of discussion here. Uh, in your opinion, you have to make a case for it. What is the best pizza in the area? I have switched recently. Uh, I love the three, four cheese Fiorello pizza. It's not huge, but I do like that tremendously. I don't know if you've had that. I was always a Belmont pizza guy growing up more so just because that's where I, uh, I always got it. And I still love that pizza. It's thin crust pizza, but you have to get it when it's hot. You know, once it dries, it cools off a little bit. It's no longer uh, nearly as good. 
<laughs> that is a well thought right, out answer. Yeah, at the moment I'm going Fiorellas. <laughs> Fiorellas. I, I think I can't get away from chicken parm whenever I go to Fiorellas. And, yeah. you know, we have Fiorellas in Newton here, which borders us at the uh, west side of Belmont, you and I, Brian. And then, um, you know, the Express in Belmont itself. So we have, we have both, uh, which is, yeah. I think we're a little spoiled. Yes, Excellent. Yes. Bobby, would you agree with that, Fiorellas? I mean, have you, have you had their pizza? Well, I've been to Fiorella's multiple times, uh, but I've never gotten a pizza from there. So that's going to be half. That's going to have to be on my list to try. So I'll take your word for that. Right now, uh, I would have to say, and it's been a staple for a long time, Stella's Pizza in Watertown. I feel like you can't go uh, wrong. Very, with very pizza. underrated. Uh, very so underrated. That's that's got to be mine. Um, you know, there's like a couple other close seconds, but that's right. Mike's mentioned that before. Pizza Roma. Pizza Roma in Watertown's good. I've been to Fiorella's a few times. I've never not gotten pizza. Um, so I'm surprised <laughs> you go there all the time and get other stuff. I've never considered getting anything but pizza there. Wow. Um, I think that's definitely in the top five in the area for sure. My new favorite is Venice Cafe or Venice Italian Kitchen in our Mass If we're gonna if we're gonna start going off on Italian food, though, I I was told about this place this weekend, and I stopped by there. Bob's in Medford. It's oh. like the uh, oh, honey, first time. <laughs> unbelievable! It was awesome. <laughs> not, not cheap, not cheap, but it was awesome. Uh, Brian, they deliver Grubhub, so. <laughs> let's let's just say when i've ordered from bob's uh i'll get like you know two meals out of it because it you know easily it's expensive well it's yeah you know you order a couple of things and it's like food for like the next week um yes, bob's that's really is worth the trip and uh highly recommend i got i got meatballs their sauce and their braided bread for for dinner and then I got the jumbo, the jumbo sub, which was like lunch for my whole family. Awesome. Excellent. So, Brian, I want, I want to thank you for joining us. I think you gave a lot of great insight. I, I, think, I think it adds value to anyone out there looking for a home or thinking about it. Uh, you know, we're going to talk about the selling side eventually at some point. Uh, but for now, I think if, if you're buying a home, you're going to get something out of this conversation. So thank you for your time. Uh, we appreciate you. And uh, we'll look forward to working with you in the future. All right. Thank you, Michael, Bobby, and Mike. Brian, thank you. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Brian. All right, care. guys.